Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm excited about this week's guest. I know, I know, I know, you hear me say that every week, but truly, this is an old friend from my past and an amazing woman. I'm thrilled to be able to introduce her to you today. Her name is Margot Torado. She's a psychotherapist, a life coach, a speaker, a storyteller. Um, she, maybe you've heard her TEDx talk that she did at Grant Park in Chicago. Um, she is a retreat speaker. Um, she's been on podcasts, done women's conferences, the co-creator of the Dash Conference for Women, and she partnered in the launch of the Center for Women in Leadership. And not only that, she's had over 40,000 hours of clinical experience, and her goal is to teach women how to have a bigger voice in the world. I'm excited to invite Margot Torado to the podcast. Hi, Margot. Hi, Anita. Thank you for having me here. So excited to be a part of this experience and to have a, uh, an opportunity to share my voice with your audience. Well, I am equally excited about that because voice is the operative word of our conversation here today. Um, you have recently written a book called Own Your Voice, Eight Emotional Habits That Empower Women to Be Seen, Heard, and Fearless. And I have to say, I absolutely love the artwork on the cover. The cover is stunning. And of course, I will have it linked in the show notes um, for any of you who are interested. You've got to, I highly recommend the book, but you've got to at least go and look at the beautiful artwork. Um, Margo, did you envision yourself writing a book? Have you thought about writing a book for a long time or did this come out of the blue for you? You know, I thought about it in the back of my head. I think most people say they have a book in them, but it really was a culmination of kind of moving from a therapist to uh, transitioning specifically to working with a more feminine-based psychology. And what I mean by that is the majority of psychotherapy was based from a male perspective. And the truth is that the what we women struggle with is different for men. So about a decade ago, I began to create a more feminine view of psychology. Simply put, how do I help women with the struggles that we have simply because we're women? Mm -hmm. And I began to introduce that to my clients, um, was super thrilled about their feedback and the changes that they were making, not just in their emotional life, but in their personal life. And then it just, uh, I realized I needed to share this beyond the couch. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. when I took off to doing a bit more public speaking and eventually a book simply because it's, it's the, it was an opportunity to reach more women at a more affordable price, as well as to um, tell a little bit about my own story as well, which I usually don't do in the, on the couch as a therapist. <laughs> right. Well, I think it's so interesting that 
as you're talking about this, I think back to my own history. I worked for many, many years in a, a Christian organization, not-for-profit Christian orga- organization. P- uh, listeners to the podcast, m- most of them know I was in radio for years. And um, if if you have grown up in the church, I would say in the evangelical church or, or in more conservative circles of any kind, actually, likely it has been much more of a male-dominated uh, world or scenario. And that certainly was the case with my years. And while there were plenty of good moments to my life and my career and lots that I loved, there were certainly some real sticking points and some struggle points and um, some wounding that happened as well, being in that kind of world. And of course, we live in a culture that is very, very male dominated as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Comments on any of that? Uh, Uh, Yes. I mean, my gosh, the oppression of women and girls, uh, the silence of women is a global phenomena. Um, and the, the, the effect of the patriarchy in terms of the way it has created cult, church culture has impacted Christian women in a different way um, because there is a spiritual element to being more silent. And it's coded in words mm-hmm. like uh, humble yourselves, you know, be a servant obedience, submission. And it's not that those words are not true. They are overemphasized to women within the church. Um, When you listen to what happens in men's literature, uh, Christian men's literature, those same messages are are not emphasized in the same way that they are emphasized for women in the church. And I'm thinking... And I might not be right on this, so but I'm going to throw this out there and see if you have a comment. I'm just thinking about fundamentalism anywhere seems to be oppressive to women, you know, not just in a, a Christian faith scenario. Certainly, we're mm-hmm. aware of it in, you know, worldwide in in other faiths as well. And so, um, you know, we're obviously t- we're talking in a more Christian context uh, mm-hmm. today. I mean, that's your faith background, um, my my faith background, et cetera. But, you know, I just think about it and think about the harm that has been done to women um, in the name of religion, not just Christian faith religion. Yeah. And depending on your cultural background, that right. can add a whole other layer to it. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a very patriarchal Latino Catholic culture where my greatest accomplishment was to have a family and take care of them and have children and pursuing an education or becoming successful or or competing nationally for events to have a larger voice in the world. Those things were not applauded. Um, They are, I mean, we've come a little, a long ways, but I'm 58, so you, so I am speaking to specifically um, how much that was a part of my own process growing up as a young girl in Española, New Mexico. <laughs> Thank you for that piece of your your own background. How did you have the drive to press toward education, and did you have some other voices in your life that encouraged you that direction? 
Uh, I, um, I have realized that I have been a feminist since I was a little girl. I just didn't know what that is. And I think within the Christian context, I was kind of quiet about it because feminism was a bad word Mm -hmm. within that culture growing up. But when I saw what was happening in front of me as a young girl, um, it just, when I listened to my body, which never lies, (laughs) it always told me there's something out of balance here. This doesn't make sense sense. Mm. And I'll I'll set a little bit of context as well. Um, I grew up in a home life that was bathed in violence and neglect. And so on top of that, there's this helplessness that was familiar to me. And so it was always a, it was within the context of looking at what it felt like to be helpless within that culture and context. And at the same, same time, realizing, at least from my experience, that the patriarchal context and the lack of really having a culture and an environment that said, what you have to say matters, added to the feeling of helplessness. And it was when I began to understand what I have to say matters. It needs to be a part of the equation. That was the game changer for me. That was when I really began to shift and move out of the context of feeling helpless and more uh, towards, um, again, just that realization that, hey, I have something to say. And not just something to say, something worthwhile to say. Yes. (laughs) Right. You know, it's, it's interesting as I hear you talk about that piece of your story as well. I think, think about myself, um, it, it, you know, there are some similar overlays and, and, um, it can be hard to break out of that because often we keep moving toward what feels familiar to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we grow up a certain way and, and then we move into certain areas, maybe it's a church or a workplace or whatever, but that feels familiar to us. So it can be hard to break out of that. Um, what for you, how, how did you start? Was it just moving toward education and, and getting an education that started opening your awareness or was it move further moving on in your life and into the private workspace, into the therapy realm? Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Education, uh, getting an education, I have a master's in clinical psychology, definitely set the foundation for looking at who I was from the inside out versus who I was in the context of my relationship with other people. And so let me talk about that a little bit. Um, You know, when we create a sense of who we are based on things like, and again, this was my story, how did I meet the expectations of others? Did I meet the expectations of my culture? Did I meet the expectations of my Christian culture? Did I, was I pleasing and engaging in behavior that was pleasing to other people? Um, 
they, I was, th those patterns kind of kept me in that cycle, but the, the educational piece really set the foundation to look at myself outside of those behaviors. Um, a lot of the work that was born, not just the, or what my book is based on is partially as a psychotherapist and partially uh, what I've learned from my own life about what it means to feel helpless and at one point in my life not feeling that what I had to say matters. You know, so I, I want to go so many directions. So let me let me try and focus here. <laughs> um, this is so good. I, I want to, you know, obviously your book is called Own Your Voice. I've said that already. And I would love to get into the eight emotional habits that empower women to be seen, heard, and fearless. And we're really going to focus in on just one specific chapter in your book, at least this go around, I'm going to have to have you back, but, um, but I'd love to at least have you go through and make mention of the other habits. Um, and then we can kind of settle in on the one specific one that we'll talk about today. But I think a part of this conversation today also has to be about what you just mentioned, that what happened in your life that made you decide to um, begin owning your voice. You know, you tell about a story in your own um, family or, you know, in the book, you, you change names, et cetera. I mean, I understand all of that, but I think, I think that piece of your story would be helpful because I have a feeling people listening will mm. resonate with that and go, oh, oh yeah, I see myself there. Yeah. The story that uh, Anita is referring to is a story I had, an interaction I had with a family member um, where I am heading home to New Mexico to and visiting family members. And I forgot to let this family member know that I was arriving. And his response to, was to become extremely verbally aggressive, to yell at me. Uh, it included a series of expletives. He hung up the phone. My response to that was to call him back and try to remedy the situation and apologize. The result was he continued to begin be angry towards me and he hung up the phone again. And I enter into this series of interactions with him where I call him and I uh, apologize. I try to make amends. He continues to be angry. Um, and I spent the remainder of my time in New Mexico that week feeling like I had done something terrible. Um, but as I began to think about that later on, I, I started realizing um, that the problem was I was waiting for him to change and mm -hmm. I needed to change. Mm -hmm. I was the one who needed to change. And it started by recognizing uh, a number of things. One, I could, needed to take responsibility for my part in the interaction, but I needed to stop taking responsibility for his emotions. I needed to stop telling myself, I'm responsible for his anger, and it's somehow my job to fix that. Mm -hmm. um, 
It was also, now I'm a psychotherapist and I've been (laughs) in the business at least 20 years at this point or 15, 18 years. It was a moment when I realized, oh my gosh, um, I have a really high tolerance for crap. And that is my definition for codependency. It was an aha moment when I thought this interaction with I have what I have with this person is not just the relationship I have with him, it's the relationship I have with a lot of people because I hadn't realized really how codependent I was. And so um yeah. <laughs> well, I have a question I, in the middle of this. I, I feel like now I don't want to, I'm not here to throw men under the bus, but I feel like women most especially have been taught to have a pretty high, um, what's, what did you call it? A high tolerance for crap. tolerance, tolerance for crap. Yes. <laughs> women, especially, I feel like have been taught to have a high tolerance for crap. Um, it's not that men, some men don't, but I feel like that from what we talked about earlier on here already in the podcast, there's an especially high tolerance for crap um, coming from women. And um, so, so your eye, it's so interesting. It's like your eyes were opened. You had already been in a field where you'd probably even said some important things to some clients that maybe actually needed to be taken in and said and lived out in your own life. Isn't it funny how we can see others more clearly than we could see ourselves, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And to your point, um, this is not the story about men and um, creating or, or saying that they are blamed for this. It's simply a story of noticing what is. Thank because you. without doing that, we can't get to the real problem. And while men and women both struggle with codependency or high tolerance for crap, in my 45,000 clinical hours of working with both men and women, I have noticed that women struggle with it more. And I think it's in embedded in some of those previous cultural dynamics that you're talking about, whether it be through your Latin culture, your Christian culture, or a home life that you grew in. Um, Absolutely. This is really about understanding the context for how some of this is built. And within people of faith, um, I find that Christian women in particular are even more vulnerable to this emotional habit called codependency because sometimes they confuse being compassionate or being patient for having a high tolerance for behavior that simply should not be tolerated period thank you wow well we're going to spend some time focusing in on that particular habit, how to reverse the habit of codependency. But just before we really dig in there, Margot, I would love for you to tell uh, folks what the other habits are that they can find in your book. And um, you and I may at some other point um, do a podcast talking about some of those, because I think these are all really important. But But I think the codependency one that lowering our tolerance for crap is a great place to start. Um, yeah. What can they find? What are, what are the other habits that you outline? 
Yeah. And, and let me take, let me describe what I mean when I say an emotional habit. An emotional habit is something we do on autopilot. Ah. We, we shut down the thinking centers of our brain and we do it automatically. So if I go back to the story of my brother, it's really not a story about my brother. It's a story about me shutting down the thinking centers of my brain and automatically moving into an interaction with him, a dance mm. that I'm participating in that says, it's okay for you to be angry at me. And I will respond as a demure individual. I will not set boundaries with you. I will take responsibility for your anger and continue to apologize without holding you accountable. So an, an emotional habit are things we do on autopilot. Mm. I was on autopilot um, as a people pleaser, um, not knowing how to protect myself. That's a big one. I'm just going to segue and come back. Sometimes um, if you think back to the story, I talk about that kind of culture of oppression that I grew up in. I did not learn the emotional habit of protecting myself. So I would shut down the thinking centers of my brain and operate in a way that was automatic yeah. based on these behaviors that I learned as a little girl. And so when I talk about these emotional habits in my book, these habits are really uh, specific to pausing and thinking about some of the things that you're doing on autopilot, particularly, especially for women and creating new emotional muscles. Mm. If I got on the floor right now and tried to do 20 push-ups, I could maybe eke out five. But if every day I got on the floor and worked on my push-ups in a month, I could I could easily do 20. And so our muscles, our emotional muscles operate the same way. Mm. Yeah, I love that illustration, um, the physical to the emotional. It's a similar thing. It's It's over time, we build up our ability, right? Our strength, our strength. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what we, what we practice goes stronger. So these habits, the habits of taking more risk, this is really about teaching women how to get out of their comfort zone, because then you learn the habit of overcoming fear. Mm. Um, the habit of embracing your inner chingona is really about learning how to be assertive, working through the discomfort that women often feel when they're assertive and what that brings up for them. And to do so um, with the idea that sometimes it's okay to create meaningful tension. Wow. I definitely didn't grow up being taught that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, boy, this, this stuff is, is hard. Yes. Um, and men are, um, they gather stories at a young age about what it means to be a man. And that includes things like taking risks, um, being assertive, and more. And these are habits that as women are not necessarily cultivated as young girls, but we can cultivate them when they're older, we just need to know how which is the intention of the book. One that comes to my mind is, you know, one of these stories is the final decision rests with you. Mm. Men often receive that message and women let that go. There might be a conversation, but 
the final decision rests with the man. You know, it's just, it's one of those that just elevated in my brain as you were talking about some of the other ones. I, so many of these are cultural and church cultural, cultural as well. It's fascinating to me. All right. So I love that. The habit of embracing your inner chingona, chingona. What does that word actually mean? So chingona is, she's a, she's kind of a tough woman who doesn't take anything from anybody. She's basically an assertive woman. And so in the Latin culture, if you're called a chingona, it's a bad word. Well, I think it's the same in, in non, non, uh, uh, Latina culture. Because to be assertive is seen, you know, in Christian culture, that's not a positive thing, but it's an okay Mm -hmm. thing. It's, it is a positive for a man. Yes. So that's why it would be the equivalent of bossy, right? So Mm -hmm. nothing's wrong with being bossy unless you're a woman. Suddenly bossy directed at a woman is a bad word Mm -hmm. in the Latin culture. When you're called chingona, it's meant as a derogatory word. Well, and I would say in in English culture, another B word is what would be used. Exactly. Right? Instead of bossy. I, yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, and this is extremely important because you've got to be chingona or bossy. You've got to be able to assert your voice mm-hmm. in order to be heard in the world in relationships at work to set boundaries and, and so much more. Uh, it it's a necessary part of equal the playing field in all aspects of life for women. Um, it kind of goes with the habit of taking up space, mm. which is really how to own your authority as a woman and how to step into leadership. Mm. Um, listening to your body's voice is another habit. Your body will never lie to you. But Men we stop. often don't know how to listen to our body. We weren't taught that. Mm-hmm. And the final one is the habit of vulnerability, which I never thought would be a part of this book. Hmm. Um, but I realized you really cannot do any of these things without also being willing to be a little bit vulnerable. And there's a healthy type of vulnerable and there's an unhealthy type of vulnerable. Uh, but to put yourself out there and take up space in the world, to be seen, to move into leadership, um, it, it, it requires a willingness to be seen and to be heard. And that's what happens when you use your voice. Mm. So we have all of these wonderful emotional habits that empower women to be seen, heard, and fearless. And we're going to focus in for a few minutes on the habit of lowering your tolerance for crap, how to reverse the habit of codependency. And um, uh, one of the stories that you tell in this chapter is what you were sharing with us about your family member and this experience and kind of that cycle that you got into, um, you know, apologizing. And uh, it's funny, one of the things that um, often is talked about is that women will will apologize much more frequently for things that do not need to be apologized for for something that is actually not their fault or um, what what is that what's that about I guess well I uh, whether you're coming at 
if you if you're if you're doing this because you're a woman or you're kind of trying to um you're not aware of some codependent patterns i think a lot of that really comes down to owning other people's emotions yeah. and taking responsibility for them and again this is where there's a big difference between being compassionate and being codependent or having a toleration for things we just shouldn't tolerate if i hurt you somebody i want to re take responsibility and apologize for that but if i hurt somebody and they continue to lash out be angry hurt me back um cross my boundaries it, it, it there that's different the different the difference is I should be taking responsibility for what I did, but not making excuses for that kind of response. Sometimes women go in their head and they go, well, you know, I raised my voice, I hurt their feelings, maybe I didn't tune into what they were needing, as if it's our job to tune in, read what other people need, and then somehow know how to respond to that situation so that other people are pleased. What are we looking for when, when we fall into a pattern of codependency? What is it that we're, we're seeking um, to, to gain? Um, what are we maybe missing in ourselves that we're, you know, looking at as we move um into that pattern or fall into that pattern because it's been modeled for us, maybe even. Um. Yes. Um, it might be helpful for me to talk a little bit about the genesis of codependency, yeah, which is good. what chapter three is about. Um, codependency is born out of um, childhood and neglect or having a parent that did not meet the emotional needs of the child. And so when that happens, this leads to a number of patterns, um, especially the child feeling like what they feel or need doesn't matter. And so what the wise child does is it intuitively starts to figure out, well, what does my parent want from me? And then it performs that. It become that child becomes that. So do you want me to be the dutiful child? Do you want me to be the silent one? Do you want me to be the one that doesn't rock the boat? Because ultimately the child is needing some sense of feeling loved and secure. So in their wisdom, they grow those behaviors and responses as young children because they need that feeling of love and stability. Right? So there's wisdom in that. Keeps them safe, keeps them secure. Survival. Them up. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. The problem is when we move into adulthood, we take these same behaviors with us. Mm -hmm. And by that point, you know, we've been groomed to avoid tension. Uh, we've been groomed to pursue harmony. And if you grew up in a home when there was emotional neglect or your parent was not able to meet your emotional needs, that feeling of neglect is familiar. And this carries over into a series of other behaviors, like uh, the idea of making excuses for somebody who has hurt them or feeling like what I, what I need doesn't matter. 
Or maybe even, let me ask this, maybe even not knowing what you need because you've been tuned into or attuned to other people's needs only, and you don't even know what you need. Is, is that something that happens? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And not only do they not know what they need, but they, because of that, they don't know how to ask for what they need. What they're really good at is understanding what everybody else needs, what other people are expecting of them, and their uh, brilliant, us codependents uh, are brilliant at responding to the emotional needs of others because we have done that throughout much of our childhood. Um, If you grew up in a particular environment that, that kind of cultivated that. I think it's easy to fall into also feeling sorry for the the person who maybe has groomed you for codependency, if you will, because you think, wow, they probably had a really difficult life or upbringing. And so I think it's easy to not start looking at um, the possibility of change or taking care of yourself, but just keep that focus continually on the other person. Doesn't that, that, I can see how that could happen. Yeah. And it can be both, right? Um, We can have compassion for other people, but it should be at the cost of not having compassion for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really critical as people think about, are they codependent and where did this come from? It's, I I can't say this enough. It's not about assigning blame to other people in our lives that created it. You know, when I wrote this book, um, I really struggled with telling my story. I love my mom and my dad. I adore them. Mm. Um, And I really struggled because I felt somehow that by telling my story, which is the beginning of reverting these patterns, I was doing something wrong. Betrayal. Betrayal. And I thought, no, I I love them. They did the best with what they could. And this was not about what they did. It was about understanding what that cultivated in me so that I can change those habits and reverse them and make it different for the next generation. Um, But it starts by giving yourself permission to look at these patterns and begin to see what's what's sending you down the wrong path what's not working for you i love i don't know if you do this in every chapter but in this um particular chapter uh you <laughs> you have this um, section called a coaching moment which i really really like it's this codependency self assessment um where you you know, you have a number of things. Uh, I have to look and see how many, I see four, five different steps, but in the first one, under the first one, which is identify your behaviors, there's this long list of things to read through and see what you connect with, what you find to be true of how you have been living and maybe telling, you know, helping you identify what it is that you need to break free from. Um, give us a little coaching moment here and talk about, you don't have to go through that huge, um, identify your behaviors list, 
Um, I mean, you can mention whatever you want to there, but but the uh, the the other points that come underneath that that I think are so helpful to pay attention to. Yes, well, as I say in the book, codependent thinking lurks just beneath the surface of our interactions with others, and it's often thinly veiled in kindness. Mm -hmm. And so in the self-assessment, it's a list of 15, 20 little subtle behaviors that we often do that are indicators or possible indicators that we want to do a little self-check and see what's going on here. Uh, so do I take things personally? Uh, do I believe other people are never really there for me? Do I stay in relationships that don't work? Do I keep letting people hurt me? Oh, this is a good one. Do I anticipate the, the, the needs of others and wonder why they don't do the same for me? <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You know, as yeah. I was preparing for this podcast this morning and read through the book and I did the list, I was encouraged because I think <laughs> I've cut them in half. Uh, but there were a couple when I thought, oh, okay. Um, a very gentle reminder to self that <clears throat> once you're codependent, you're always a codependent, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a recovering codependent. And which one of these things do I very gently with ambitious compassion want to work on uh, mm. next? Um, and when I have my clients do this self-assessment, um, I tell them when you're done, just put the book down and walk away for 24 hours nice. uh, because the list is pretty revealing and it's so well done in terms of describing the nuances of how kindness can be toxic mm. under the right circumstances. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I have so many thoughts, some of which I can share and some of which I can't. <laughs> this is great. I, I hear uh, you. <laughs> yeah. I, um, but the point is, you know, we're doing, you help us do a self-assessment and then take a break like you said, a 24 hour break, which I totally get because I can see how you can, if you, if a lot of these are on your list, you can, a typical codependent person, you can beat yourself up pretty good. <laughs> what you need to do is just take a break, just set it aside and then return to it, right? The next day. And then what, what do you do after that? Um, I suggest that you pick two of these patterns and commit to working on them mm. for a week. That's great. it. That's right? a great idea. And yeah. so again, as I mentioned earlier, if you told me to get on the floor and do 20 pushups, I couldn't do them. But if I started doing pushups every day, boy, would my muscles get strong. It's so important to enter into the exploration of do these patterns exist in your life with incredible compassion and patience. And with the realization that all of these habits can change, it just takes continual practice and little habits become big habits. So it's better to start creating little ones versus setting yourself up for um, these larger unrealistic expectations. And in the book, I actually suggest five specific habits, emotional oh, you, habits. You call them magic habits. <laughs> I think magic. They are, yes. Some they, magic habits. <laughs> they are magic. 
Um, specifically, I, I like, yeah, yeah, to dismantle codependency. I, I think it'd be helpful to talk through some of these. What are some of these magic habits? First and foremost, and if this is the only thing you started with this month, it will be a major break for, for our listeners who might be um, doing a little self-check right now. Um, the first habit is that will help reverse codependency is know what you need mm. and be willing to ask for it. It's, I love, is, can I just say, I love that you didn't start with, um, you know, ask for what you need. No, 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 no. Know what you need first. Know what you, you need. Know what you need and then be willing to ask for what you need. Because that's a one-two punch. It's not just one of those things. It's both of them. Absolutely. And codependents often know how they feel, but they have great difficulty asking, knowing what they need, and much more difficulty asking for it. Yeah. When I'm sitting with a client and I ask them, well, what do you need in this situation? And they squirm. I mean, they literally physically squirm and get uncomfortable. I'm like, I understand. It's really hard if for much of your life, you've turned down the volume on your voice, turned up the volume on other people's voices, and just stopped listening to what's going inside of you. And so I, again, I, I have a great compassion for this. And it's the process is simple. Ask yourself, what do I need? Mm -hmm. Second, validate what you need. Mm. It's okay. What you need matters. Can and I, then can, finally just respond oh, to it and respond mm -hmm. to it. Can I say, can I ask this, um, give some love or kindness to those who are listening, who are saying, Oh, Margo, I'm in my sixties. I'm in my seventies. I'm in my eighties. And I'm just figuring this out. I just feel like, where have I been? What have I been doing? I mean, we, we've got to show some self-compassion as you, as you figure this stuff out, right? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. And it's okay to start anyway. What I notice is that a lot can happen in a short time. I began to start on this topic with almost all of my clients when they come in because it's where they have the biggest breakthroughs. In fact, this last week, I had a 75-year-old woman come to my office with the book in hand. And she says, it. listen, I'm never going to be a boss lady, but mm -hmm. I do want to learn a little bit of this mm -hmm. because I'm really struggling in my current situation. Oh. And I, I just was so um, warmed by her inner strength in her willingness to say, I can begin at any moment, anywhere. We can change at any age. I think that's a huge message. It's important. Well, we don't have a lot of time left. Maybe give us a couple of more of these magic habits. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked a bit about not owning the emotions of others, um, boundaries, um, Boundaries is step two of reverting codependency. When you think about a boundary, it's a line that marks what is not, is and is not okay with you. Mm. Um, 
And so when we know what those are for ourselves, we can then pass those limits on to others. Uh, people pleasing is also very common within codependence and recovering codependence. Uh, we're really good at tuning into what other people are thinking, feeling, needing. And without even being asked often, just intuitively know how to respond to the needs of others. Mm -hmm. And so becoming more aware of when you're doing that on autopilot can also be a very effective way to just do a little bit of a self-check. Um, because when you're doing that as a codependent, you're doing it because it gives you the feeling that you're needed. It gives you the feeling that you're loved or secure. And it does feel good for the moment. But then those behaviors become contingent on the other purpose, person's response. Mm. What is much more powerful than that is building an, identi an identity from within. Mm. Um, building a solid understanding of, <clears throat> excuse me, who you are in relationship to yourself rather than to other people is key. Wow. <laughs> There's so much here. I mean, this is, this is just one chapter. This is just one of the eight emotional habits that you talk about in your book, Own Your Voice. Uh, I think it's an incredibly powerful book and what a great work you've done. I mean, this is, to me, I look at this and I go, Marco, this has got to be like your life's work here. I don't know what you think, but this is powerful stuff. And I am so grateful for your work. Thank you. It's been wonderful to merge what I know as a psychotherapist with 30 years experience combined with the stories of the thousands of women I've worked with as well as my own story. It's been a wonderful ministry and um, it, it was thrilling to put my book out there um, finally. Uh, and it was, it was both terrifying and exhilarating to own my voice in, the, in this, in this way, in the biggest I, way. I love it. So good. Well, um, I think I'm going to have to have you back so that we can talk about another one of these emotional habits that empower women. Um, will you do that? Can we talk I again would. sometime? Absolutely. I'd love to be back. Great. And I would love to hear from you. If this really hit a hot button with you, I would love for you to email me, producer at anitalustria.com. Um, I can pass on your high five to Margot as well. Again, producer at anitalustria.com. Again, Margot, thank you so much. And as always, I say to everyone else, keep the conversation going.